Every 10 years, Lisa Dickey travels across Russia. And while she's noticed a lot of changes there, she finds that some things are just timeless. But I just remember standing on the shores of the lake and looking out on the lake and thinking, I'm stranded by the shores of Lake Baikal. I have no idea how we're going to get back to civilization, but I just could not be happier right now. It just felt like the most beautiful place in the world. Coming up, we get pointers for getting to know everyday Russians outside of the main tourist cities. A local guide gets us up to date on what's new and what's not to miss this year when visiting London. There are lots of special exhibits to keep you busy, and many of them are free. You also must go to Kew Gardens. It's like a museum of plant life. It's the best botanical garden in the world. And a panel of friends from Germany, Hungary, and Greece confide how Europeans tend to think about Americans. We've always been looking towards the United States as a model for democracy. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Even though its days as the seat of an empire are long gone, London remains one of the world's great capital cities. While the British work out their political separation from the rest of Europe, for the time being, a devalued pound is making pricey London easier for the more budget-conscious travelers. Plus, with plenty of top-notch attractions that are free of charge, you could say that this year, London's on sale. A local Blue Badge guide takes your calls in just a bit to help you plan a great London getaway. We'll also hear from friends on the continent about how America's recent political goings-ons are affecting our reputation in Europe. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves with a close-up look at another country that's in the news lately, Russia, and how life has been evolving for its working-class citizens. In 1995, Lisa Dickey joined a small reporting crew that traveled for more than 5,000 miles all across the entire length of Russia. Since then, she's been going back every 10 years to follow up with the people she met on her first adventure. She writes about how the real Russia compares with its reputation in her book called Bears in the Streets. Lisa, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. You had quite a mission. I don't think you set out from this uh, in 1995, but explain the, the premise of your book, Bears in the Streets. So in 1995, I took this trip across the whole of Russia, starting in Vladivostok, way, way down on the very southeastern tip of Russia, and traveling all the way back across to St. Petersburg over a period of three months. And I went with this photographer named Gary Matoso, and we stopped in 11 different cities along the way, and our goal was to just interview a cross-section of ordinary Russian people, rich, poor, male, female, young, old, and just, you know, see how they were living four years out from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ten years later, I got in touch with Gary and I said, hey, wouldn't it be cool to go back and see how these people are doing now? And he couldn't make it, so I got another photographer, a guy named David Hillegas, and he came with me. And I retraced the steps from that original journey and literally would just, like, pop in and see people again, knock on their doors, and just show up and say, hey, it's me. How you doing? <laughs> you know, what's what's changed, basically? And then even before the end of that trip in 2005, I knew I'd want to go back in 2015, and I did. I went back. I did the whole trip again, now dropping in on people 20 years after that first visit. And then I ended up uh, writing the book, Bears in the Streets. It's hard to imagine such a vast expanse with such rudimentary or crude or simple infrastructure, and people really do rely on the Trans-Siberian Railway to lace the country together. They really and truly do rely right. on the railway. And the railway is, I'll tell you something, Russians do bread really well, and they do railways really well, because the trains really do run on time. It's absolutely reliable. And I came to really look forward to those times on the train in between the cities. How long would it take if you just did the trip from Moscow to Vladivostok? How much would it cost? How would you sleep and eat? And what would the social scene be like? 
Well, first of all, it's helpful to know there's actually three lines. You can take the classic Trans-Siberian, which is Moscow to Vladivostok. You can take the Trans-Mongolian, which basically like hooks south right at Lake Baikal and goes through Mongolia and then into Beijing. And then you can take the Trans-Manchurian that goes around the edge of Mongolia and down into Beijing. Hmm. And any of those three takes about six or seven days if you literally just go straight through, not stopping anywhere. Mm-hmm. So you're on the train day and night and, you know, sleeping with the rocking of the train. But do you get an hour here and an hour there during stops where they tell you we're going to be here for so many minutes and you can get out and at least stretch? You can get out and stretch. I don't think there are any stops that are longer than 20 or 30 minutes. Okay. So it's not like you'll stop in a city and you can zip out and actually do any sightseeing. Hmm. Okay. People go on the platform, they replenish their supplies, they have a cigarette break or whatever it is that right. they want to do. But you better make sure you're back on the yeah. train when it starts rolling because it'll roll on without you. So as a traveler, you would need to look in advance and decide where you wanted to get out, probably arrange the accommodations and book a train a day or two days later. Yes. So I I would say for people who don't speak Russian or are not feeling particularly intrepid, the best way to be able to take the Trans-Siberian and stop in various cities is to book a tour that does that or to get a tour company to help you do that. Mm -hmm. If you do speak Russian and you're feeling intrepid, you can do what I did, basically, which is buy a ticket from this place to this place and then you get out and you can, you know, now in Russia you can just do Airbnb or you can, you know, book your hotel online and there's ride sharing. I mean, Airbnb, it's really a, ride sharing yeah, outside of yeah. Moscow and St. Petersburg. You mean way out in the middle yeah. of nowhere. Yeah, when I planned this third trip and I was trying to figure out where to stay in Vladivostok, it was one of the few places where I didn't have people that I, you know, was hoping to stay with. And I started looking online and I saw that there were places with Airbnb and it just made me laugh. I (laughs) thought, oh, God, it's just so different now than it was in 1995. It's just crazy. It's remarkable how things have changed, of course, in travel in the United States and Europe, but uh, even more so probably when you think of how simple and crude it was in uh, Russia just after the end of the Cold War. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Lisa Dickey. She's written Bears in the Streets about her journeys across Russia since 1995. In it, she profiles the friends she's made in 11 different Russian cities and how their lives have changed as their country has too. Lisa posts updates about her book signing appearances on her website, lisadickey.com. Lisa, when we think about going across Russia and looking at change over the years, I've been to Moscow and St. Petersburg a number of times, and these are great cities with lots of energy and lots going on, lots of dynamism and change. What about what I would imagine is the dreary industrial towns further to the east? Uh, what's it like on the street, and do the rich um, you know, cosmopolitan centers change more than the, than the poor cities, which might stagnate more? I mean, I have to say, you know, in between 1995 and 2005, I just saw just vast improvement across almost all the strata of, you know, Russian towns and cities because, you know, the economy was just in such a disaster in 1995, four Mm. years out from the Soviet Union. But then, you know, between 1995 and 2005, when I took my second trip, the price of oil tripled. And Russia is a very oil-based economy. So all of a sudden, there was this money that was flowing in. And, you know, they were very effectively flowing it out into the cities and towns and fixing up the infrastructure and building bridges and, you know, repairing potholes in the roads and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 2015 is a little bit, the economy's kind of gone back down a little bit again. And so it's a little bit trickier now. Mm-hmm. But it's also bad for the Russians, but it's good for the people visiting Russia. I mean, when I was traveling across, the, the ruble had fallen by half its value over the previous mm-hmm. 18 months. So suddenly I'm buying train tickets and staying in hotels and it's costing half of what it would mm-hmm. have 
had I gone in the beginning of 2014. And the ruble is still quite weak. So it's actually, I think a lot of people don't think about Russia as a place where, oh, I'd like to go there. But honestly, it's a fascinating place. There's so much history. And it's actually quite welcoming to Americans. I mean, regardless of the fact that there is this Mm -hmm. um, animus that goes on between our governments, it's quite welcoming for Americans, I find. Now, you had a companion on your first two trips, but in 2015, I understand you went solo, a solo woman traveling across Russia on the Trans-Siberian. You mentioned you got, finally, you got tired at the end of a little sloppy and you got ripped off. But generally, as you went across Russia on the Trans-Siberian, how did you manage? What were the challenges for being all alone? I was very nervous going across this time by myself. And actually, the first couple of cities I was, you know, I'd be in Vladivostok. I was in this hotel that I had booked, and I would, like, chain my bag to something in the in the hotel before I even went out. And then I realized later on, you know, this is not, I was overreacting to that. Hmm. And as I went across, I realized, okay, this is as long as I do the things that every smart traveler should do, which is, you know, don't wear a lot of expensive jewelry, don't have a backpack that's easily unzipped if you're not paying attention, somebody mm-hmm. takes your wallet and things like that. But I didn't really have a whole lot of problems. Being on the train is difficult because, you know, I'd be, I think the longest train trip I had between two destinations was a two and a half day train trip. So invariably, there are going to be times when you have to go to the bathroom and you have to leave your stuff. You're not going to literally carry everything you own. But you can also judge. I mean, it's pretty trustworthy. Like people travel Mm -hmm. on the train all the time. And also as a woman, this is actually very helpful to know for women who are traveling on the Trans-Siberian, you can request and book a female car. Ordinarily, if you're buying, you know, a ticket in a four-bed coupe, you could be in there with three guys or two guys or one guy, and that's not tremendously comfortable. But if you book the women's thing, then you're guaranteed either to be with other women or by yourself. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lisa Dickey. Her book is called Bears in the Streets, reporting on three trips across Russia, one in 1995, one in 2005, and one in 2015, comparing how Russia has changed over the decades. There's three towns you wrote about that I've never heard of. If you could just give us a thumbnail sketch about what each town is like. Ulan Uda? So Ulan Uda is a wonderful stop. It's the capital of the Republic of Buryatia. And Buryats are closely related ethnic group to Mongolians. And so they're largely Buddhist. They look rather Mongolian in features. It's a really fascinating culture. A lot of farming that goes on there. And it's gorgeous country. And Ulan Day has the largest Lenin head in the world. So that's worth seeing. That's like, the, it's how big is that? Ginormous. I think it's something like 42 tons and 25 feet high or something. It's just so huge and it's so fabulous. I, I highly recommend Ulan Okay. And then there's a place called, uh, forgive my pronunciation, Listvyanka. Listvyanka, yeah. Listvyanka is a little town that's right on the southern tip of Lake Baikal. And it's got a museum there of the lake and it's got a Nurpanir which is a seal aquarium. There's actually Hmm. seals that are um, indigenous to Lake Baikal. And it's just a wonderful little town, beautiful, surrounded by hills, and it's right perched on the edge of the lake, very quirky. And you can get the local cuisine, which is omul, which is a type of fish that's found in Lake Baikal. Super delicious. And Lake Baikal itself is a huge attraction. What is it, half the fresh water in the whole world is in Lake Baikal or something That's right. Yeah, it's the deepest and largest freshwater lake in the world, and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's so worth a visit. And Listvyanka would be a jumping off point for exploring Lake Baikal? Yes. So you can get to Listvyanka very easily from Irkutsk. You can actually take a bus. I think it takes about an hour and a half um, to take the bus, but it's very easy to book stuff and stay in Listvyanka. And it's really, really a fun place to go. And finally, Kazan. What's that like? Kazan is the capital of Tatarstan, which is a largely Muslim people. And it's closer to Moscow. But the thing that is in Kazan that is so worth seeing is there's an ancient Russian Kremlin, which is a fortress, and it's Mm. whitewashed walls and then the towers and stuff. Um, And then inside the walls of the Kremlin is a giant, beautiful mosque. 
with the you know the domes and the and the minarets and it's just absolutely gorgeous but to see this mosque nestled inside the walls of a kremlin is just such an extraordinary sight it's truly beautiful and it is really worth going to see ah, it's been so interesting to just fantasize about taking the trans-siberian railway from your stories and, and your book is just fascinating we've been talking with lisa dickey her book is called bears in the streets and lisa if we could just finish off what is a moment in your trip across Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railway, stopping at these fascinating but almost completely untouristed town, where's a moment where you felt both very far from home, but at the same time really thankful you were there? You know, I always think of this moment I had in 1995 where we actually kind of got stuck at Lake Baikal. We had gone out on an expedition with the research scientists who study the lake, but their expedition was going to be eight days long and we could only afford to go for a couple days. So they actually dropped us off on the shore with this tiny little town with pigs roaming in the streets. And they were basically like, we hate to leave you here, but, you know, good luck getting back to Irkutsk and, you know, somehow we'll find a car and to flag down. Hmm. But I just remember standing on the shores of the lake and looking out on the lake and thinking, I'm stranded by the shores of Lake Baikal. I have no idea how we're going to get back to civilization, but I just could not be happier right now. It just felt like the most beautiful place in the world. That is an inspiration. Lisa Dickey, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for writing Bears in the Streets. And what is that? Thank you very much, and, and safe travels. Happy travels. Same to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rick. An expert on London tourism takes your calls next at 877-333-7425 as we look at a few of the highlights happening there this year. And later in the hour, friends from Europe share their thoughts on America's image overseas. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Ever since the Brexit vote last year, the value of the British pound sterling has dropped enough that it's turned London into something of a bargain right now for foreign visitors. And lots of special exhibits are making the city irresistible for many travelers. Joining us for an update on what you can enjoy this year in London is certified local blue badge guide Jeannie Carmichael. Jeannie, thanks for joining us. Not at all, Rick. My pleasure. There is a lot happening in London. First of all, just touch on Brexit. With the whole Britain leaving the European Union, the pound is quite low, isn't it? Absolutely. We're now cheap to visit, uh, some 17% cheaper. 17% down. So, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever you think of Brexit, uh, (laughs) it's uh, good news for your budget if you're an American traveling in London. And you've got some excitement on the sightseeing scene. I understand there's a new design museum. Fabulous. Well, in London, we already have some 250 museums, but we have a brand new, beautiful design museum. They say it's the best in the world. It's in a stunning new building. And where's this located? uh, It's just by Holland Park in Kensington. Oh, nice. Yes. What's it called? Oh, it's called the Design Museum. The Design Museum. It's free to visit. Contemporary design. Absolutely. So you got fashion, furniture, architecture. Architecture, Mm -hmm. anything you can think of. It's fascinating. There's so much to see there. And nearby, you could almost walk to the Victorian Albert Museum. Absolutely. You've got beautiful Holland Park there. You've got Leighton House, beautiful Mm -hmm. Victorian House Museum. Any news at the V&A? Yes, indeed. This year coming up, uh, there will be an exhibition all about Pink Floyd, the famous Pink Floyd. band. Pink Floyd, yes. So in England, that's a big deal. <laughs> Absolutely, in a, in indeed it is. You know, the Victorian Albert Museum is a fascinating walk through English culture. It's the best museum in the world for I anything love it that that's way. beautiful and useful. So you can spend oh, a lot of time in the, in the, v, in the V&A. And, mm. and a great thing about that is you feel like it's, it's not a touristy thing. English people are there enjoying sure. their heritage mm. and their culture. 2017, it's been 20 years now since Princess Diana died. How's that going to be marked? Oh, something very special in Kensington Palace, where she lived. There's going to be a fabulous exhibition of her 
clothes, the fashion that she wore so well. The star piece being, do you remember when she danced at the White House with John Travolta in that oh beautiful goodness, yeah. dark blue velvet dress? That will be on display. I meant you can fill up a whole gallery with oh, great gowns. Just beautiful gowns. And another lovely thing, in consultation with her sons, the princes, they're going to plant a beautiful new white garden by Kensington Palace oh, in her memory. So okay. that'll be beautiful. So Princess Diana fans will have plenty to look for in London mm-hmm. this year. And another anniversary, 50 years since male homosexuality has been uh, decriminalized. How's that being celebrated? Well, I think this is very important because think of the great gay men who have suffered so badly under this. For example, Oscar Wilde, right. Alan Turing, without whom the war, World War II, would have extended much longer. Especially in Tate Britain, there's going to be a wonderful art exhibition called Queer Britain. Hmm with a wonderful portrait of Oscar Wilde right next to the actual door of Reading Jail, where he was imprisoned for two years for Oscar the crime. Oscar Wilde of, was imprisoned for oh, being gay. Oh, absolutely, yes. That's what killed him. We've come a long way. That's Thank something God. to celebrate. Thank God. Also, there's, mm. I mean, London to me is just a work in progress. There's always new skyscrapers, a wonderful evolving skyline, uh, Lots of investment in infrastructure. Mm. Uh, what's going on with uh, getting in and out of town? Are there are there new train lines, new, new stations? Absolutely incredible. It's one of the, the hugest engineering projects of this century. It's called Crossrail. It's an underground train system that will run underneath London from outside the east of London to outside the west of London. Fantastic. Basically, it's a new tube line. Absolutely. Making but it it's high speed that will let you get right across London very quickly. Now, anytime you dig in London, I would imagine there's some complexities because you find uh, London's got centuries and centuries of history. Oh, my Lord. So this is what's exciting. The engineers have uncovered so many archaeological finds. So the Museum of London is having a fantastic exhibition about all of these finds. About what was uncovered what was during uncovered. the Crossrail train tunnel dig. Yes, and we've had to rewrite, well, we will have to rewrite some of the history books. The Museum of London, by found. the way, is really a charming museum. Yes. I mean, it's just, it feels like designed for school field trips in a, in a way, because mm-hmm. it's just so user-friendly, and it makes the complicated history quite easy. A lot of great artifacts, and you can walk through 2,000 years of London history. Sure, in a very enjoyable way, and it's free to visit. The Museum of London. So London is, even when it's on sale with the pound down 17%, it's still expensive from a accommodations point of view and eating compared to a lot of places. But we've got to remember, a lot of the greatest treats in London are absolutely free. Indeed. What are some of the great cultural exhibits that are free that you can enjoy when you're in London? Oh, the British Museum, the mm-hmm. British Library... So many of our great museums are absolutely free. The National Gallery. The National Gallery of Art, the National Portrait Gallery, the list goes on and on and on. That's great. So we talked about the cross-rail train tunnel Mm -hmm. and the excavations that are shown off in the Museum of London. I've read about this King's Cross development. Yes, now that's exciting. King's Cross is a Victorian railway station, and they have developed around the railway station an amazing complex of new buildings. Google is going to move in there. That will be Google's headquarters. There's a massive new university there, the University of the Arts. There's a theatre there, but there are lovely restaurants, wine bars, 
Very interesting architecture. It's a mixture of old Victorian buildings and brand new buildings. Now, Jeannie, there's a little bit of um, insecurity or we don't really know what the future holds for us as London and England and Britain grapple with the reality of Mm -hmm. Brexit, leaving the EU. Mm -hmm. Are some of these huge mega infrastructure projects on hold because of that? Or is England barreling through with something like the King's Cross development? Barreling through. Yeah. Google has announced it's going to go ahead one way or with this building one way or another. Yes, that's So that's a big vote of confidence. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jeannie Carmichael about what's going on in London. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Mary's calling in from Wilmington in North Carolina. Mary, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to talk to you. We'll be traveling with our two 10-year-old daughters and wondered if there are any other exhibits that might be great for kids. Well, Mary just opened brand new in London is the world's largest Lego exhibition. There's an entire tube carriage built out of Lego. It's stunning. It's on Leicester Square. You have to go and see it. So you got Legoland out Legoland. by, but there's Legoland out by Windsor. Yes, but this is in the heart of London in, heart in of Leicester London. Square. Amazing Leicester. sculptures. The kids would just love that. Now, the Victorian Albert would always have kid stuff. And oh, there's the National indeed. Mu- what is the Natural Museum right the next door? The Natural History Museum right next door with the dinosaurs. They would love that. And all of our museums go to the information desk. They will have special trails for children. They have special tours for the children. A lot of times there'll be an audio tour that's um, free or for a donation designed for adults by the curator of the museum, mm-hmm. and there'll also be a parallel track for the kids that's yes. more kid-friendly. Mm-hmm. And that's something to look into, Mary. Yeah. Oh, great. And do they like Harry Potter? Yes, and I wondered if that King's Cross development was going to change anything about the train track there. No, no, no. You can go to uh, to King's Cross Station and what to Platform 9 and 3 quarters. <laughs> that's a national treasure. And They'll you can never be photographed that. holding on to your, your luggage trolley being pushed into the wall. And do take the girls to go and see Matilda. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, that's so funny. They'll love it. And what is Matilda? Oh, it's a, you know, Roald Dahl, the, uh-huh. the children's author. Right. It's one of his stories set as a musical. Right. It is so funny. I think there's a Time Out magazine version for children or for kids. Well, Time Out has, yes, has a whole a section. special of, section for yes, kids' for events. children, what's so, happening. Yeah, Mary, when you're in London, pick up Time Out magazine. Yes. That's a free weekly. Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, mm-hmm. and it has a kids' section because there's a lot of creative cultural exchange kind of stuff or cultural, you know, fun that's designed for families and kids, and, and then you'll know right up to date what's happening. That sounds perfect. Have fun, <laughs> Mary. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. And Molly's calling from Plano in Texas. Hi, Molly. I am. Hello. Um, I had a similar question. We are traveling to London for the first time. Well, our kids are going to be visiting Europe for the first time. So I was curious about some not-missed things with children. You guys have spoken about a few already, but are there any additional things that you could add? The Toy Museum. Is that the... the oh, pl- absolutely. The, the Toy Museum the in Bethnal Green. Yeah. Yes, the that, that's fabulous. The Toy really amazing. Yes, that's lovely. You must take them to see the changing of the horse guards, Molly. Yes, they will that would be that. great. Yes, that would be wonderful. And the yes. Imperial War Museum, to me, is a fascinating opportunity for children to get a look at the human end of going to war. And it really mm. takes you right back, and it's done in a, in a family-friendly way. And if, if you want a, a very interesting look at European history in a sort of a... doesn't glorify war, but it just talks about the people end of it, I would recommend the Imperial War Museum. Okay, that's 
great. My husband really likes that museum, but he likes to read every single thing, so I would have to restrict him a little bit in the time. <laughs> that's, that's true. Um, but uh, what a great thing to take your kids to London. I'm just trying to think what else would be fun for kids. Well, how about the Tower of London? That's always fun. Oh, they, yeah. they like the stories of the ghosts and the, beef you know, the executions so and all this sort of thing. When you thing, go into yes. the Tower of London, uh, a Beefeater tour, one of the guided walks is included, and those guys, kids are just wide-eyed when mm. they follow yes, that. Yes, that would be great. All right. Hey, That'll Molly, thanks so much for your call. Have a good time. Thank you very much. You yep. too. Goodbye. London-based tour guide Jeannie Carmichael is taking your calls on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK as we look at some of the fun things you can do this year in her home city. And Richard's calling in from Westfield in New Jersey. Thanks, Richard, for the call. Thank you so much. So my wife and I, my wife actually loves to garden, so I was thinking that maybe the two of us might visit the Chelsea Flower Show in the end of May but I wonder if you had any advice about doing that for a long weekend, how to do it efficiently, and what else we might do while we're in town. Oh, gosh. There's, Garden loving. Yes, there's so much, Richard. You need to get your tickets well in advance. It does sell out. So I would go online and get your tickets as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. Just down the, on the same street is the Chelsea Physic Garden, which is a small 17th century garden that was planted especially for physicians. So it's full of fascinating medicinal herbs and mm. plants, and they're all labeled to tell you what, you know, what effects they have. It's brilliant. You also must go to Kew Gardens. It's like a museum of plant life. It's the best botanical garden in the world. I love Kew Gardens, yes. and I'm not even that into gardens. I mean, it's yes, incredible. It's and stunning. You can, you can pick up uh, what's, what's blooming this month yeah. as you enter. Mm-hmm. You could spend all day at Kew quite easily. Could I also say, Richard, one of my favourite gardens, which is not very much visited, is by the Design Museum that we were talking about. It's called Holland Park, and it is the most exquisite park. The Japanese garden there, which was instigated by Prince Charles, is just bliss. That sounds wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much. Not all at right. all. Have a lovely time. Richard, thanks Thank for your you. call. Happy my, travels. My pleasure. Thank you. Jeannie, we had a couple of uh, families that were planning on going to London, and I find that the Sir John Sohn Museum is just one of the most amazing trips back in time. Absolutely. Can you explain the Sir John Sohn Museum? Because it's one of the overlooked delights of London. Yeah, I, I love to direct people to the lesser-known museums, and this is one of my favorites. Sir John Sohn was a very talented architect. So he, in the early 1800s, bought two houses fitted them together and started this crazy collection of anything that interested him, anything from a priceless Egyptian sarcophagus to gorgeous works of art to interesting shells and birds' eggs and just interesting bits and pieces. It's the most mind-boggling eclectic collection of all sorts of stuff. You feel like you've gone back a hundred-year-old time warp. Indeed, and they've just spent seven million pounds in restoring the building and opening rooms that have never been opened before. Oh, that's fantastic. So it is just wonderful. So that's John Sohn, S-O-A-N-E. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And of course, another part of Britain, and you've just got to check out the theatre. What are some of your tips for enjoying uh, the theater? Uh, basically, every night except Sunday, there's something going on. There's 80 different... Yeah, you have the choice of 80 different productions every well, night but Sunday. Les is calling in from Miami. He's got a question about some theater in London. Les, thanks for your call. Yes, how are you? We've been to London four times. Uh, on this trip, we were planning on attending a show at Shakespeare's Globe. And oh. we were wondering, because we can see that there's some obstructed seats, we were wondering... What are the best seats we should try to get 
and what's the best way of trying to obtain them. Well, when they say obstructed view, there are columns that you might get stuck behind. There aren't that many seats with obstructed views. You can choose some that are not. If you want to save money rather than an obstructed view, I would get a groundling ticket. You can stand. And then with a groundling ticket, you're right there with your elbows on the stage. That's what my daughter did when she was there, but I think we're a little too old. (laughs) In that case, you're going to have to sit. Yeah, right. But my advice to you, when you go there, you can hire a cushion to sit on. That's good. But this theater in the round, or this Globe Theater is like, it's so exactingly done, isn't it? Uh, uh, Jeannie, explain what they were trying to do when they recreate Absolutely recreate. So this is... The experience. The no amplification experience. under the stars. What's different this year, I'm sure you, you've heard that they've um, appointed a new artistic director, and she has put in artificial light oh, for the first time. Oh, that is a big time. change. But um, they've asked her to leave. It's been very unpopular. They asked so, her to leave. There's yes, that much of a resistance because yes, this really wants want to be theater in, like Shakespeare yeah, had it. Yes, the experience. Do also don't forget you're in the open air, so take something warm to wear. Yeah. If you buy a seat, you will be undercover, so you won't get rained on because the show goes on no matter what happens. It can be thundering, it can be snowing. The show goes on. And the fun thing about the way Shakespeare wrote is he wrote for two audiences, right? He wrote sure. for the sophisticated mm-hmm. people, and he wrote for the groundlings. Yes. And you can laugh at all the, the uh, crude jokes, while the other people will just uh, wait for the more sophisticated yeah. jokes. And you can bring food in, you can buy a glass of wine, you can walk about and then, as a groundling. And then when you're tired or you're ready to go on to something else, you can, you've had the experience and you can yeah. step out. Les, good luck on that. Thank you. That sounds very tempting. Do remember, I guess you've been there before, but there's a wonderful museum associated with the, uh, attached to the Globe. And if you go during the day, you can get one of the actors to give you a tour of the theater. And that's a good way to understand the theater before you go that night for one of the performances. And also, something else new. At the back of the Globe Theater, they've built the new Wanamaker Theater, which is a theater built to the design of early 1600s, and it's lit by candlelight. It is just bliss. Oh, that's a delightful opportunity. That's something I hadn't heard about. That's new. All right, Les, lots of reasons to enjoy theater in London. Yes, thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for your Have a good time. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jeannie Carmichael about what's going on in London. And and Jeannie, if you haven't been to London for a while and you want to enjoy a public space with a great view... Let's finish our discussion just by recommending some place people can go. Well, I would tell them to go to New Change, which is right by St. Paul's Cathedral. There's a big new shopping mall there. There's a high-speed lift that takes you onto the roof of the mall, so you are at eye level with the Dome of St. Paul's. You're looking down on London. It's absolutely free. It's breathtaking. So it, I've been there. It's, it's like it's in a shopping mall of some sort, and you ride this modern glass elevator up, and there's AstroTurf. Uh, it's absolutely. like a little park. And there's a like a, a modern cocktail bar there's there. There's a lovely cocktail bar, and indeed. it's free. And yes. my my understanding is, if you're building some great development in the city and you're obliterating some views that were there previously, you've got to allow public access to a viewpoint indeed. in your building mm-hmm. and provide a little park halfway mm-hmm. up the skyscraper. Yes, and you're right there looking out at Christopher Wren's magnificent. And if you're there in the summertime, they put up screens so you can see events like Wimbledon for I free. Love they put it. deck chairs out there. And what's the name of that again? It's New Change. New change. Right by St. Paul's. And it's just behind St. Paul's, just essentially across the street. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've got the huge, wonderful uh, St. Paul's Church, and then behind that, new change. Jeannie Carmichael, thanks again, and we'll see you in London. My great pleasure. A room with a view 
and you And no one to worry us No one to hurry us through This dream we found We'll gaze at the sky And try to guess what it's all about Then we will figure out why The world is round Up next, we invite a panel of European tour guides to let us in on how the American image is playing out in their countries in light of the changing political landscape here in the USA. We're at 877-333-7425 and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. News from the United States has been like a wild roller coaster ride these past few months. So how is the American political drama affecting what our European friends think of us as a global cultural leader? For some international perspective, we're joined now by George Farkas from Budapest in Hungary, Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki in Greece, and Holger Zimmer from Berlin. George, Anastasia, Holger, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having us. Hello. This must be a fascinating time to be looking at the United States from Europe. Just generally, when you, when you look at the United States from Europe these days, what thoughts come to mind, Holger? Well, I think, you know, we've always been looking towards the United States as a model for democracy, you know, like Declaration of Independence and all of that. And that's something that's, you know, it's been going on for a long time. Also, like anything else, popular culture, fashion, mm-hmm. music, like a lot of things that are like a trending in the States will come to Europe pretty soon, like. So you're from Berlin, which is quite a trendy place in Germany, and still you find uh, American leadership in pop culture. Well, that's something that we all, you know, get. Like everywhere in Europe, you listen Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, American or British pop music a lot. So that's something. George Farkas from Hungary. What's the, uh, when you look across the Atlantic at America from uh, a Hungarian point of view, what sort of um, thoughts do you have? I can echo Holger. Um, And many times we, once we look over the seas, we, we, we think that, Oh, next day is going to come to us, and uh, we always wonder how long that next day is going to be. Um, so mm-hmm. something appears in America, and is it going to be a month or two or tomorrow that we're also going to see it? Uh, is that right? So you know, if something happens in America, it's like if you see lightning, you know there's going to be thunder, but you don't know how long it's going to come until Some, it hits you. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah. What's an example of that? Where something has happened in America, and then a version of that came to Hungary. I was just thinking when when I mentioned that I was just thinking like achievements, you know, mm-hmm. or any new products coming on on the market, or mm-hmm. uh, any movies, or any uh, TV series. TV oh. series, even, huh? So what's, oh, yeah. what's an mean, example about a lot, TV lot series that's big TV, in the states, and then somebody picked it up in Hungary? Oh, that's a good uh, question. My uh, wife would be able to answer that because <laughs> she is front of the TV. And uh, the reason why I just brought that up because we spent a few weeks in uh, Fort Lauderdale before we uh, came to see you and uh-huh. she turned the television on. She was saying like, I don't believe it. They already have this session or did, you know, this episode of this series and we've like five uh, weeks or, back or you're whatever. So, yeah, 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 she, she was so, so exciting and she said, oh, look at the amount they have. So Surely sort of uh, spoiler alert, if you go to America, be careful what you turn on. Exactly. <laughs> It up for you when from, you get back home in Hungary. Yeah. Anastasia, how about from Greece when you look at America? Because Greece has had quite a, quite a few challenges lately. What do you look at when you see uh, the United States? All different things, but may I just answer that question about the TV show Game of Thrones, for example? For instance, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, how we look at that. Well, Greece has been through rough times and still mm-hmm. is. And we do see a lot of similarities, not just between Greece and America, but also Europe in general and mm-hmm. America, what's happening in the world. And on the other hand, we were always having a kind of country role model, 
and mm -hmm. out of different reasons. One of the reasons has to do definitely with television and movies, because most of what we get is American, so that mm -hmm. has a, a huge influence on our culture, definitely. Would it be dubbed? We will no. have subtitles. Subtitles. So yes. you'll hear the English. So we hear the English. Yes, and that's what you're hearing, actually, because my accent is TV accent. It's a bit of everything. So completely uh, mixed. You're <laughs> lucky. Why, why would the Greeks be lucky? I think uh, most of the European countries are luckier than us from this perspective because we have everything um, dubbed. Dubbed? So, okay, because Italians have it dubbed all. Yeah. You have it dubbed? Yeah, all dubbed. So we, okay. we don't have a chance. Like so you don't have a chance to write. Scandinavians, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they speak, speak perfect American. English because of that. You perfect know, English, they speak we, American. We just have it all <laughs> done by German actors and German you know, slang, which is not quite the same. In other words, the voice track is made in German. Yeah, completely right. new. So you're looking like, at the American show. And but you have a German we voice. Have German voices, yeah. You can't convince a Hungarian that, that Chuck Norris doesn't speak Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they just, they just can't imagine because oh, that's, that's how they know him. So, <laughs> and Anastasia, you're saying uh, if you get the uh, subtitles, you pick up the, the sound of the American language. Yeah, you definitely more. do. But America has been for us a kind of role model, not always in a positive way, but many times. And we are a country struggling to get away from its past. We were always half torn between the West and the East. And uh, we have been trying to get modernized, westernized, and in this case, I would say also Americanized. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki in Greece, George Farkas from Budapest in Hungary, and Holger Zimmer from Berlin in Germany. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Auli from Turku in Finland has emailed us. And Auli writes, The Finns regard Americans as insincere, fake, selfish, money-oriented, loud, and brash. They only know about the United States matters. Nothing about outside uh, American borders interests them. Dumb is in in the United States. Americans only accept the American way of doing things. Americans used to bring in the tourist dollars, but now they travel on the cheap, and it is the Asians that bring in the tourist euros. Whoa. So Auli is taking a little more judgmental approach to American travelers. Uh, Americans, insincere, fake, selfish, money-oriented, loud, and brash. You all take Americans around Europe on your tours. Um, Holger. Well, I want to I just touch on a couple of points there. One would be being insular or just being kind of like accepting your own way of life. And I think it has to do with the fact that in Europe, we are close to each other. Germany is surrounded by what, like eight or 10 neighbor states. Like we are knowing, we have to know what's going on around us. Like we do know when in Hungary there's an election, we do know uh, what's happening in British politics. So this is really the Auli's comment that we only uh, know what affects well, us directly. I think, well, I think there's a reason for it. Like in Europe, everything is small and tight and like we are neighbors. We got to work with each other. So mm -hmm. if you open up uh, a German newspaper, we have like two or three or maybe sometimes even four pages of foreign policy. And when I traveled in the States, like 91, I was looking and reading the papers. And I was kind of shocked to find there's maybe, if at all, one page dedicated to foreign policy. But I mean... You have to know what's going on in the world. But America is such a vast place that, yes, I can understand to a certain extent that you are concerned with what's happening in the States because that's so big. You know, we're talking small countries versus one big state. And I think that is maybe also the reason, not like that people are not interested, but they don't really get the exposure of other things and they don't really need to because there are 
on this other part of the Atlantic. And I think that's kind of when we come in while traveling to really open eyes, not to people who are like dumb. I don't want to know my, my way is better. That's not the way mm -hmm. I perceive it. That's not the way that, that I experience it with people on tour. Mm -hmm. But it's more like, hey, we didn't know that. We didn't think of that yet. George, Anastasia, any other thoughts on that email? I was thinking that we do take people around, definitely. But I don't think that the average American tourist in Europe is the average American in America. Not really. How I mean, so? Because what we get is that not many Americans travel to Europe. Not as many as we would have liked to, at least. Not many want to take that in quotation marks, the risk, but it's because it's not a risk, really. Yeah. Right. But the risk of getting out of your comfort zone. Maybe that's the big risk. The risk is not physical <laughs> yeah. danger. The risk is having your norms being challenged because Thomas Jefferson mm -hmm. said travel makes a person wiser, if less happy. Traveling definitely opens a new door to the world, a new way of looking. And maybe there's some the, things you would world. rather not know, but it's the reality. They are there, and there is no point in trying to avoid these things because they are there. And at some point, you think that they will never knock on your door, but at some point, they will. I think we, we are all lucky that we're actually meeting the ones that have decided to leave their comfort zone. And yes, I mean, there are like loud and brash Americans in a bar somewhere. But hey, I mean, you know, believe you me, we have this bunch of Europeans down the road in a pub. They take over the place. They're loud and rowdy <laughs> too. So, And I have to say... I've been doing this for like 10 years now, and I, to be honest with you, I would not like to do this job for 10 years with Germans on my back. Germans How would German all, travelers be different I, than American I travelers? Would, I would think Germans can be really, let's say, strict and also very, how is it, like, oberlehrerhaft. They're kind of like, they're always kind of the teachers. They will tell you, no, but Holger, listen, in my guidebook, it says on page number 43, paragraph 5, <laughs> it was not 1633, but 1646. <laughs> and that kind of attitude, that's what I think I have to say. I've been traveling, and I'm really happy traveling with Americans because what we just talked about, it's an openness, it's a curiosity. There's people who say, hey, show me the world. Let, you know, let's have a look at what's going on. There's a lot of happiness and fun going on. And I think Germans might be, I think, much more grumpy. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Jeff is calling in from Williston in Vermont. Jeff, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks for taking my call. My question is, we'll be touring some countries in Eastern Europe this year, and I'm wondering how Americans will be received by the locals, considering the recent election of Donald Trump as the U.S. president and all the related controversial press. Hmm. Everyday people who you will meet will not be affected by that change in your country. I mean, obviously, on a political level, um, that would be different. And, uh, uh, for instance, us as Hungarians, we always looked at America as a guidance. And um, if there was something, uh, you know, going fairly dodgy or overly dodgy in our country, we always thought, no worries, because someone, uh, either European Union or America, will come in and say, you know, slow down. <laughs> and now we're a bit worried from that perspective that there is no one now to say slow down, but maybe to speed up. So now that's interesting. You've looked to America for predictability right. and stability. Holger, from Germany, what is the perspective from, from Germany with... Well, I think it, first of all, gives us a lot to talk about and to think about, because listen, what is happening in America is not just happening in America. We we have similar ideas, similar trends, or similar kind of uh, fractions coming to the fore now when it comes to rhetoric, to speech, because we all kind of face a reality that lots of our 
values, lots of our, what we took for granted for years, you know, growth and being able to afford healthcare, everything was fine and, and peaceful. That is shaken to the core these days and not just in America. And I think though we have to separate two things because when, you know, a caller asks about like how are Americans received, like they still received with a, an interest, where they're like, hey, come on, let's talk to me about what's happening because we want to meet people. We not mm. want to meet like I don't see you as like a representative of a government. I see you as a person who comes to my country to travel and to learn. Ever since I was a kid, I've had people telling me essentially that we don't we don't agree with Reagan or Clinton or whatever. We just want to know you as an individual, and then they'll they'll judge us accordingly. Well, one important thing is has to do with our mentality in Europe is we're used into making jokes and fun out of our politicians. So if you will come to Europe, and definitely if you'll come to the South, you will find lots of jokes, lots of pictures depicting the situation and Trump himself in a very funny way. And you may feel offended and you shouldn't because um, this is the European way. We do it for our own as well. And they may even make a joke about his hair. Don't take it personally. <laughs> it's it's just the European way. It's in a very different uh, mentality I've found than, that, than in the U.S. I've found that Europeans can be a little bit polite or shy about starting a conversation about politics, especially when there's a controversial president. And I found that if if you do not talk politics, people will not break that little peaceful puddle that you're living in. But if you want to talk politics, all you got to do is mention it and you open up a flood of discussion from your European you friends. You and they love it. Because yeah. Europeans love to talk politics. That's it. Uh, Jeff, does that make sense to you? Uh, yes, it does. Jeff, thanks for your call. Okay, well, thanks for taking it. Mm -hmm, bye now. Have a good day. Bye. We're getting European points of view about the United States right now on Travel with Rick Steves from our tour guide friends Anastasia Gaitanu from Greece, Holger Zimmer from Germany, and George Farkas from Hungary. You can hear more of our discussion on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. In the United States, fast is good. Fast service, you know, eat and run coffee in the car, fast food. When we go to Europe and we try to fit in, how is the opinion on that? Is that catching on all over Europe, Anastasia, for instance, in Greece? Well, we definitely do have that. But there is also the opposite trend, like slow food, slow living, slow everything, slow down, mm -hmm. slow down life. We, I mean, we is a general term, like, you know, we Europeans are very diverse. So, but I still think there is more of an idea of, hey, let's not haste things. You know, in Austria, they say, nur nicht hudeln, kind of means like, take things slow, take it easy, you're, you're good. Like, yeah. don't, you don't need to rush things. And I think that's still an attitude we, on, a, on an everyday, common basis in our everyday life, we still retain. And in Italy, my, my friends tell me when I'm uptight, piano, piano, it's okay, <laughs> slow down. Hey, George and Anastasia, another related concern I have is when I go to Europe, especially in the South, I'm very frustrated by how easy it is for somebody in authority not to make a decision because somebody above them is the responsible person and they're not there. Do you know what I mean? And it's just oh, like, yeah. it's the bureaucracy. Uh, right. And if the, if the boss is on vacation, I can't get the simplest thing done because, oh, I'm not responsible. And I think that would slow down the whole well, business productivity. Well, a lot of times it's the, the matter of people are worried about their task. So, uh, you know, they only want to do what they uh, are told to do. They're following processes. And this is why people will not make a decision because if they do, someone else will come in and say, well, that wasn't your right to do. And even if they do and they issue you some sort of a permit and then you go and say, 
I did this because this person signed it, they could tell you that that person had no right to sign that because that's my authority to give you that right to do so. And that person could actually have their job in jeopardy because they yeah. overstepped their authority. And then on top of that, you might go into a huge trouble of going forward with something that you shouldn't have. If you know somebody who knows somebody, really? or yes. if you're from the country and you know how things work, which button to push, or you know the law by heart, or you know what to say to that person, then usually you do get the one who's really responsible and you do get your job done, but you really have to have grown up in that society Never to gets. know how things work. But I always, you know, like that about like the the differences between maybe Europe and America. And that's something that I found traveling the States like years ago for like four months all across the country. What I took back was this idea of American pragmatism. I was completely surprised by that because like in Europe, I think the first thing is we ask if there's a problem, we say, Mm, this might be very difficult to solve. Mm. Yeah. There's probably <laughs> rules that, you That's know, right. it's a tradition, it has to be like this. In America, I really love this refreshing way of saying, okay, here's the deal. How to solve this problem? What can we do to make it happen? And I really thought it was something new to me as a European. I really realized I come from a different tradition where there's things are more set in stone and have been done like this for mm. years and years. And this approach of saying, be quick about it, be snappy, and let's let's get together, solve it. Hey, George Farkas, Holgert Zimmer, Anastasia Gaetano, so beautiful talking with you all. I'd like to close with one question. I'd like to ask you to name one American that you that you and generally your countrymen admire and why. We'll start with George, then we'll go to Anastasia and finish with Holger. People who I interact with, they would say Hillary, Hillary Clinton at the moment. And why? Because she uh, would um, represent the line of thinking and the values that people who I interact with would share. Anastasia. I would say maybe Martin Luther King, because he was the symbol of a change. He was really trying to make a change. And we are a country that is constantly trying to make a change, but never really mm. <laughs> achieving much. You know, we're very good at, at talking, but not really in action. So, so I, Greece can I be inspired by the, the challenges uh, and, the, and the change that Martin Luther King brought about. And it's not only that, it's like making yourself a symbol and sacrificing mm -hmm. your life and the life you could have to help everybody else mm. and, and really change completely the way a nation is thinking. Holger, from I think Germany. For me it would be a little bit on the side of the popular culture, you know, music. So I'm thinking of Woody Guthrie or people like now, they're still alive, Patti Smith, for example. Like she's a kind of an icon of kind of punk rock culture. And that's something like taking stories from everyday life and looking at the dark side of things and be not be afraid of speaking it out and using music to really inspire people. I've seen a couple of concerts of Patti Smith in Berlin and I was like, I was inspired by that powerful woman speaking her mind, making sure, let's not forget, you know, who's on what side. George Farkas from Hungary, Anastasia Gaitanu from Greece and Holger Zimmer from Germany. Thank you all very much. Thank Thanks you. for having Thank us. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to KPCC Pasadena for studio help this week. Find more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. 
His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.